0: I went to get my second vaccine and sat down and was explaining to them that I am a nervous fainter. So they got a little nervous. So they were trying to talk to me. And then they looked, I guess, at my papers and they looked at me and they said, are you the person who made all those masks? And I said, well, yeah, that's probably me. And they said, well, thank you. That's so amazing. And and I felt famous for a second. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Vermont Untapped, a podcast from the Vermont Folklife Center that explores the state through the voices of its own residents. I'm Mary Wesley, and textilian Eliza West joins me today for the third and final episode of our Mask Makers series. So far, we've explored what led these makers to start sewing masks and how that shaped their experience of the pandemic. We talked about the many adaptations required of mask makers— and the many forms of community coordination and collaboration that emerged to support them, including sharing materials and tools. In this episode, we learn how mask makers began
1: expressing themselves creatively through the masks they made, and how they helped others affirm their identities in the middle of a global pandemic. Initially, mask makers stepped up and responded to the rapidly changing circumstances of the early pandemic. But here we are, at the start of 2022, still wearing masks. As pandemic restrictions lifted,
2: makers started heading
1: back out into their communities and began interacting with people who were wearing their masks.
2: Going back to the honeybee pattern, I would see people wearing that pattern out on the street. And of course, I had no idea if it was one I made, but you know, just knowing that I was part of a group of people who made those masks for so many people because initially the donations were for people in healthcare facilities, uh, frontline workers and um, first responders. And so it really felt good to know that me, you know, sitting in my dining room turned mask mass making headquarters was a part of that.
1: The masks that Roz Whitaker-Heck, a mask maker and associate dean at Champlain College in Burlington, is talking about were made through a big volunteer effort coordinated by Vermont Teddy Bear. The distinctive honeycomb fabric was donated by Bees Wrap. A huge number of these masks were distributed in Chittenden County, and for me, they were one of the first masks I recognized. Angela Lavalla was on the team at Vermont Teddy Bear that coordinated the project. We got on a really good pattern, and it was really fun to listen and hear people give feedback of, like, this is the mask that I wear every day. It's my favorite mask. Um, and so it was, like, nice to help, but also nice to know that, like, this thing that, like, kind of sucks. Like, if your ears hurt and your face hurts and we're all breaking out. And, but then to try to find something that's comfortable and also, like, kind of cute. I remember a line going around that was, the best mask is the mask that you will actually wear. And that has a lot to do with comfort, but also with appearance. Early on, those of us who were making masks were balancing that desire to have cute masks with the materials we could actually find. Eli from Shapeshifters, who we heard from in our first two episodes,
3: speaks to this. I think because at the very start, the cottons that we had on hand were quilters' cottons, there are prints and fabrics that have sentimental value um, and many of them have already been made into quilts. And then we had the cast offs, the extras fabric that was just, oh, I can make one small thing out of this. Turns out that was a mask. So I think from the very start, because of the way quilting as a craft works, a lot of people had something sentimental on their face. And then went, ooh, yours looks great. I want a mask like that. Ooh, yours has whales on it. That has meaning to me right now. And I think that, that was sort of immediate because there was a shortage of store fabric. There was a shortage, there was a huge shortage of plain white cotton. That was gone for months. There was just none of that to be found. But your your quilter friend's back closet did not have a shortage of scraps. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, Mary, I spent a couple of months making masks out of fabric I had in my stash and stuff my friends were donating to me. But slowly, I ran out of cute fabric to use on the fronts of masks. At the same time, I started craving a chance to make masks that I really thought were pretty.
0: Yeah, I have a lot of those masks, Eliza, and they are pretty. I was especially susceptible to the cute animal prints. Basically, if we were going to keep wearing masks, I think we all wanted to feel good about what they looked like because it was right on your face.
1: That makes me think about a story our farmer friend, Hank Bissell, and also one of my mask customers, sent me early last year.
4: So I'm in the grocery store and uh, minding my own business and giving a wide berth to people the way we do now. And I realized that people were looking at me, looking at me in the face, looking at my eyes, and they continued looking at me. So I get back to the car and, you know, put the groceries in. I pull my mask down. And as I did it, I realized, oh, this mask has this weird gold stripe right across my nose there. And this is what they were looking at.
1: The mask Hank is talking about was blue with gold stars and a strip of gold lame bias tape across the nose to hold a nose wire. Hank also got another mask for me at the same time, one with zebras on it. Oh
0: yeah, I have that one too.
4: So I think there's there's something odd about a farmer wearing a whimsical mask. But I think I've gotten better mileage out of the zebra mask. i say that this is my good mask, my Sunday go-to-meeting mask.
0: I love that. Pink really nicely articulates his arrival at a different point in the pandemic regarding masks. He's no longer just thinking of safety measures, although that's still the primary function of the mask. He's reached a point where he's realizing his mask says something about who he is. At a certain point in 2020, we all found ourselves with a little more
1: time to stop and think about masks, how they reflected our identities and our values. Here's Roz Whitaker-Heck again.
2: This one has very bold yellow and red and with a little bit of what i called um i guess spotted blue and the pattern is like a almost like a penny flower and then this one is more of a geometric design and it has um very sharp angles and It's like a aqua blue, white, and a kind of a goldish yellow, but that's what it looks like. And I know this is not exactly the Vermont aesthetic, but, you know, it's my aesthetic. And the company that I found um, is out of Texas and is black owned. And I said, well, at least I'm supporting her, you know, this this um, this business that sells these fabrics. So that's kind of how it happened. And I was very um, surprised, pleasantly surprised to see that, hey, there are a lot of Vermonters, at least the ones that I ran into who, you know, like these bold, vivid patterns as well. So um, I wanted the uh, folks to know the history and the origins of the patterns. Um, So I looked it up and I found out that, well, they're Dutch in origin and they were manufactured, the fabrics were manufactured to be sold in Indonesia And then from there, the patterns and fabrics became popular in West Africa. So you'll see a lot of West African fashion um, with these patterns. And my understanding is that um, some of the patterns actually have stories behind them and meanings behind them. So I'm still doing a little bit of research to find out more about it and the type of fabric is called Ankara yes so I put a little bit of history about the fabrics um in my shipping package to (laughs) to the folks who who want them
0: Roz who we just heard from there used mask making as a chance to support businesses she valued and explore the history of the fabrics and patterns she loved She shared that with the friends and family she made masks for. For Eli Coughlin-Galbraith, whose business Shapeshifters custom-builds garments that help their customers affirm their identities, mask-making became an extension of that work. Because
3: we're transgender as hell and have a lot of transgender customers, we ended up making masks with pronouns on them. So that people who were walking around in their day-to-day lives and just wanted to be addressed with the right pronoun could have it written all over their face. And those are still pretty popular. Um, There's also just the classic buffalo plaid. Like, you literally cannot be gay in Vermont and not own 10 plaid shirts, I'm pretty sure. Somewhere around summer, fall, I think, we invested in a machine that would, uh, a a die press that would put spikes on a mask. It was like an additional, I am spiky, leave me alone measure, which has also been one of those things that, you know, we do very specific, very custom made things. We always have. And we're used to people coming to us being like, you can make exactly the thing that I want, right? And so when people started coming to us mask-wise and saying, you can make exactly the thing that I want, right? You can make a mask that has my pronouns on it and also tells people to just stay six feet away. And turns out, yes, we can. It's fun.
1: In recent weeks, we've seen recommendations change, and many of us are setting aside our fabric masks in favor of N95s. But for the year and a half between the initial scramble to get anything at all on our faces and the recent shift in recommendations, many of us were choosing masks in part because of how they reflected our identities. We wore masks that we felt good in,
0: and they became a tool through which we connected with each other. The goal of this project was to dive deep on one of the many ways that Vermonters have come together in the face of great adversity, to protect each other. Only it turns out that we're doing more than that. We're shaping our identities, we're building connections and learning skills. We're researching Dutch wax print fabrics. Masks have become part of our lives, not just the part where they keep us safe, though. Masks are mementos, handmade objects crafted by people we love, beautiful expressions of our own vivacity. We
1: hope, whether you made masks, donated fabric, or simply helped keep your community safe by wearing your own mask, that this series feels meaningful to you and your experience of the pandemic. We want to thank the dozen mask makers who talked to us for this project. We also want to extend a general thanks to everyone in Vermont and around the world who made
0: masks and participated in a hundred different ways. Thank you. In this episode, you heard the voices of Aaron Nagoyo, Roz Whitaker-Heck, Angie Lavala, Eli Coghlan-Galbraith, and Hank Bissell. If you haven't already, which I hope you have, make sure to check out the show notes for this Mask Makers series. Find them at www.vtfolklife.org untapped. You'll find photos, bonus audio clips, mask patterns, and more. You'll also find more information about all the amazing people we interviewed for this project. Vermont Untapped is produced by me, Mary Wesley. My brilliant co-producer and co-host for this series is textilian Eliza West. I couldn't have pulled off this first Vermont Untapped miniseries without her. Thank you, Eliza. Our executive producer, who also happens to be the VFC archivist, is Andy Kolovos. The cello music in this show was recorded by Dave Hoy. And the other musical tracks are from Vermont's own Pete's Posse, www.petesposse.com. If you liked listening to this show, please tell others to look us up and subscribe. Thanks for listening.